We are in Philippians chapter 2 this morning, so would you turn there with me to Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. If you're new to the church, my name is John. I'm one of the pastors here. And today we're looking at the topic, others first in a me-first culture. Others first in a me-first culture. I think that so often as we look at our, our lives, have you ever looked at how we are obsessed with ourselves? Uh, I mean, just take a look at a few examples in culture. Uh, we have a magazine called Self Magazine, of all things. Um, uh, Frank Sinatra kind of laid the way with his song, I Did It My Way. Uh, we have endless Facebook uh, posts about our lives, uh, no matter how trivial they are. And this whole preoccupation with selfies as you take pictures of ourselves at every possible environment. By the way, note to self, I was in Cancun. Though That water is not Photoshopped. It is the bluest water I have ever seen in my life. But you'll notice me, there's no selfie of me in my bathing suit. There are some scenes you just do not want to see. I'm just telling you, that is not a happy thought. Maybe one in a hammock or something like that. Um, but we're preoccupied with ourselves, with our body image. Even uh, our sports stars are promoting their brand. And in our culture, we got to admit, we're generally pretty much more interested in us uh, than in somebody else. In fact, if we're completely honest, it's pretty much about our agenda, not anybody else's activities. And our culture promotes this kind of me-first mentality, and it's really rare. It is really rare when you meet an other-focused individual because so often people are just caught up in their own stuff. They're just kind of self-absorbed. But when you meet that person, that rare gem of a person who is other-focused, this is what our text is about this morning. And how does it work? How do they become that? What is it like uh, to be that kind of a person? That's what we're going to look at this morning. Really, can we be selfless instead of selfish? Uh, I think that's a lot easier said than done. And quite frankly... The secret to it is found right in this text in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So how do we do it? Who models it best? That's where we're headed this morning. Heavenly Father, I ask that right now that you would not allow the messenger to confuse the message as we look at your word together in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we look in the first two verses, we look at the motivation, selfless people seek unity. Selfless people seek unity. Now, normally I would read to you from the ESV, but I want to read just these first two verses from the message. It's a great uh, paraphrase. If you ever kind of get stuck and you're saying, hey, well, I can't make sense of this, great um, <clears throat> paraphrase of these first two verses. It goes like this. <clears throat> if you've gotten anything at all out of following Christ, if His love has made any difference in your life, if being in a community of the Spirit means anything to you, if you have a heart, if you care, then do me a favor, agree with each other, love each other, be deep-spirited friends. Selfless people seek unity. So the background here in this text, uh, in your translation, I think the ESV, it'll say since or if it is or since it's been true or since there is. It's, a, it's what we call a first-class condition in the Greek. In other words, we assume it to be true, and it is true. And he says, since these things are true, then do me a favor, do these following things. Now, 
We've already agreed as we've looked at the book of Philippians, you've been with us for the last few weeks, there's no big doctrinal issue that, that he's addressing in the text with the Philippians in these four chapters. You know, it's the theme of a life interrupted. He talks about joy, about trials, about suffering. It's written in prison. But if there was one thing that might cause division in, Philippian, in the Philippian church, it might be disunity. And the, and the issue is it wasn't such an insidious, you know, infighting kind of thing. It's when people are passionate and earnest about their beliefs, and then they're going to kind of get up in each other's grill about it from time to time. The problem isn't that they're enthusiastic about it, but the problem is that your preferences or your feelings or your opinions or your thoughts are going to collide with somebody else's thoughts. And that's the danger that Paul, you know, is warning us of. It's, it's dangerous to be a Cub fan in this building if you have a Dodger fan that's sitting across from you. Uh, I have to laugh. I was, um, uh, we, we got some international feeds. So in the midst of, of uh, you know, being in the ocean and being on vacation last week, I got to watch a game. And uh, in particular, last Saturday, uh, they did not get the USC Colorado game on the feed. But I'm, I go to this, you know, that's one of the restaurants that's a sports bar. And, and here's a guy sitting at the bar like this, watching the SC game on his iPhone. And I go, is that the SC game? He goes, yeah. I said, oh, man, I'd love to watch it. He goes, yeah, do you got anything bigger? I go, I've got my laptop. I'm thinking, such a good reason to have to be preparing for a sermon. I had my laptop. We break it out. And, he, and then we, we get to talking, and he goes, well, who are you cheering for? He goes, I'm a Colorado fan. <laughs> well, we're done here. Um, no, we weren't. But it was so fun to just kind of watch together. Of course, I liked the outcome better than he did, and it was all good. But the bottom line is, Paul's not concerned about doctrines here. Uh, he's talking about preferences and, and maybe personal choices and our agenda versus somebody else's agenda. Now, here's when it becomes a problem. When your personal preference becomes my moral imperative. And there's a whole lot of areas where there's a plenty of gray area for Christians to disagree. When your personal preference becomes my moral imperative. Dodgers, Cubs, Republican, Democrat, earrings or not earrings, tattoos or wear or not, homeschool, private school, public school, having a building in a church or not having a building. We went through this phase where it wasn't cool to own buildings. I want to vote for you right now. I kind of like having a building. I just, my personal preference, all right? Um, contemporary versus worship versus traditional worship. Uh, none of these are doctrinal, you know, you're not getting into heaven depending on the position you take, but that's the essence of unity in the body of Christ when you have differences, when you think differently, when you are different. Remember how the church was founded? A Philippian jailer, a really rich lady who had an export, export, uh, import-export business, and a, and a slave girl. Kind of the basis of the Philippian church were those three people. So they started from different places. So write this down. The selfless other-focused person exhibits one undeniable quality. They are intentional about loving others and seeking unity. Two aspects, they love other people and they seek unity. So this idea of self-promotion and pride and all that goes with it, it's so opposite of who we are. We, we are called to be selfless, loving, humble, kind and yet everything in our culture pushes us to self-promotion. Now, when you meet someone who seems to be selfless, not selfish, 
It's such a rare commodity. Now, the problem is we kind of think, are they just kind of milk toast, you know, meek, and, you know, there's just going to be a, a doormat, or does God really want us to be other person focused and selfless? Well, I believe the Scripture is going to show us that that's the way to go, to be selfless, not selfish. Now, I have one primary example of this, but she said if I mentioned her name in the service, I could not go home with her, and, um, and she said that, never, never met, quit using me as an illustration. But, you know, as we fell off to sleep last night and had our prayers, I'm sorry. She is. She is that person. Um, she is selfless. She is humble. But I do want you to know that I've thought about it, and some other people gave me some examples of others, and I could go through the congregation of those like, like the name I just almost said. Um, for you who don't know me, you'll, you'll figure it out soon. Um, but I'll tell you one that I can think of, and her name's Paulette White. She is that person. And some of you don't know her. She's sitting all the way back here in the back. She's now hiding from me. She's not giving me any eye contact. And uh, I warned her, uh, and just wave at me. Okay. She's so embarrassed. You see, that's the whole deal. They don't want attention. They don't want to be self-promoting. They just serve, and they serve, and they serve, and they give to others. They don't expect anything in return. That's the idea as we look at those first two verses, selfless people seek unity, and they do it by being intentional about being loving and seeking that unity. Now, the bottom line is that there are things that undermine that, though, right? And so we look at uh, verses three and uh, verse three here at the minefield, and he's suggesting to us that we should avoid these two mis- uh, attitudes. It says in verse three, "Do nothing from rivalry." Uh, other translations, selfish ambition or conceit. So the first attitude to avoid is ungodly ambition, ungodly ambition. That's the idea of, uh, it kind of results in the self-promotion. Phillips' translation says, never act from motives of rivalry. Uh, J.B. Phillips' translation says, there must be no competition among you. In essence, when you are doing this, you're saying, you're wrong to everybody else in your life. You're wrong, all right? And it carries the idea that you're kind of caught up with building yourself up while you tear somebody else down. Uh, now, I noticed on vacation that when you catch crabs and they're in a bucket, yeah, I saw that kind of behavior. They're just crawling over each other to get out of this bucket to free themselves, and that's kind of what he's uh, challenging here, this ungodly ambition resulting in self-promotion. So first big idea there is then dis- diffuse competition. That's the idea. Don't, don't try to seek your own personal agenda and, and take advantage of others, you know, at their expense so you can kind of be first in line, so to speak. Now, as I'm preaching this, I got to tell you, it's tough because there's some texts where I could say, yeah, I have nailed that. I am so good at that. I'm like, oh, I, I can preach this, talk to all of you because I've got this one down. This is one where both these minefields are things that I struggle with personally. And the second one is pride reflected in self-righteousness. That's that empty conceit. Never act from motives of personal vanity, the Phillips says. Do nothing or don't do anything from a cheap desire to boast. New American Standard says empty conceit. So this is the person who's prideful and it reflects in self-righteousness. Look at me. And that person is not also, besides saying you're wrong, they're saying I'm right. In essence, I'm right. And this conceit 
kind of always is a one-upmanship, kind of self-centered one-upmanship. And so where the first one pursues personal goals, the, the prideful person is seeking personal glory. Personal goals versus personal glory. One attains to accomplishments, the other one to kind of an overinflated view of themselves in terms of their self-image. So in the first one, let's diffuse competition. In the second one, let's delete conceit, delete conceit. And quite frankly, half the problem is we don't see it in ourselves. We kind of just think it's normal to be self-serving, self-promoting, etc. Thirdly, we see in the text, in the end of verse 3 and verse 4, the manifestation of a selfless person. And so, I don't know if you've noticed that the, in the Scriptures, every time God says to put off something, He gives you something else to put on. We see that in Colossians 3, right? Put off these things, put on this. You see that in Galatians 5, the fruit of the flesh, fruit of the Spirit. God never creates a command in your life to put off something and leave a vacuum without replacing it with something you're supposed to fill your life with. Here's his answer to those two things. The first is in verse 3 at the end there, it says, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So the first thing is defer to others, be humble, defer to others, be humble. Now, the unsaved crowd in Paul's day did not think humility was one of those great attributes. Much like today, we kind of think, eh, you're kind of being trampled on, you know, assert your rights, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But it isn't coincidental. Check this out. When you go to the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, what is the very first Beatitude? Do you remember? Blessed are those who are poor in Spirit. Isn't that interesting? This humility that Paul's describing, that's the number one thing he talks about as he opens the Beatitudes, or Jesus does in the Beatitudes. Now, when he says better or more significant, he doesn't mean superior here. The, the Greek word means worthy of respect. Treat others better than yourselves. Have you ever met that kind of person? They're just so rare to be around. Let me give you an example of someone who's like that. Have you ever been in a conversation with someone where as you're talking to them, they ask you question after question after question, and you notice, maybe you don't, all of a sudden you realize it's been 20 minutes into this dinner, and you've done all the talking because they've done all the question asking, and you wonder, I like hanging out with that person. You know why? Because everybody wants to talk about themselves in some shape or form. You go, oh, no, not me. Well, just try it sometime. In a question... Just try to ask the other person more questions about them than you talking about yourselves. And it's something that, uh, it, it's, it's a skill. And I find that when I'm around those kind of people, they really do defer to other people. It's, it's fun to be around them. And in fact, when you're around them, your life's enriched because you feel like, wow, they really care. The second thing he says to do is to demonstrate consideration. The first one, defer to others, be humble. Second one, demonstrate consideration, be kind. Look at there at verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Be interested in them. Now, that idea of look comes from the Greek word skopos, where we get the word scope from a rifle term or a telescopic term. In other words, it's pay attention, hone in on it. Get your sights aimed on the other person's agenda, not just our agenda. 
So test-taking time here, all right? I'm going to ask you a series of questions. This is the selfless versus selfish inventory. I'm not going to make commentary. There's a couple ground rules. Spouses, you cannot lean over and change any answers on your spouses. Like, are you kidding me? No way. Just take it for yourself. Second uh, observation is not to create any guilt, but just to provoke us to say, hey, am I really even engaged in this thought because the whole world around me isn't, all right? So how do I know whether I'm selfless or selfish? Well, I'm going to use the concept of serving throughout this and see what you think. Uh, Am I selfless? Well, how about do I serve others when it's not convenient for me? Do I serve others when there's nothing in it for me? Do I serve others when I don't even like that task? Now, I'll make a a slight commentary for those of you who have been married more than four minutes. There are things that you don't like to do, and it's called division of labor. So do you serve, are you selfless when you're serving uh, in your own home? There are certain things, there are three things I really don't like, but I've become expert at it. One is washing dishes, and I am very good at washing dishes, all right? Um, Now, the reason I'm good at it is because I would like to eat, and so we have an agreement. You cook, all clean. It's a great partnership. Um, I'm not a big fan of toilet cleaning. I really don't like it, and some of you ladies are going, and we don't like it either. And so, um, it's kind of funny, we have a housekeeper from time to time, Here's the funny thing. Here's what my wife says. Make sure you clean your toilet before she comes. And I went, well, why do we have... She goes, you know why. And I go, oh, yeah, I guess we do. Um, So I don't like doing that, you know. Uh, So there's plenty of times where we serve where we don't, quote, like the task. How about this? I serve others when I'm tired and exhausted at the end of my day. See, maybe someone else in your home is also tired and exhausted at the end of their day, do I serve when it's my, quote, day off? That one's a little more personal for those of us who are in ministry. And so there are times, well, it's very easy to slip into a total self-serving agenda. Well, self-serving agendas are nothing new. Chuck Swindoll in his book, uh, Laugh Again, talks about self-serving agendas in history that has been it's been evident for, for millennia. Greece said, be wise, know thyself. Rome said, be strong, discipline yourself. Asceticism said, be lowly, deny yourself. Religion said, be good, conform yourself. Epicureanism said, be sensuous, satisfy yourself. Education says, be resourceful, expand yourself. Materialism says, be narcissistic, please yourself. Pride says, be superior, promote yourself. Christ says, be unselfish. Humble yourself. And so we do see the ultimate model. You knew where we're headed with this, right? The ultimate model of this is Jesus Christ. We see this in verses 5 through 11. But first, we'll look at the emptying or what we call the kenosis in verses 5 through 8. Now, I want to tell you right now, those uh, four verses could be the basis for an entire message. I will refrain 
from the theological rabbit trails that I would like to go on today, but I will not. But if you want me to come to your life group, we will go on those trails for as long as you want. But let's look at it together because this is an astounding text. Have this mind or attitude among yourselves, which is yours, was, uh, which was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There's a six-stage descending process here that I won't get into, but the bottom line is this is a hymn that many feel was one of the earliest hymns of the Christian church that was put to music singing about what Christ did. And this ultimate example of an other first mentality is so ironic because Jesus modeled it so well. But think about the number of times where he's talking about, hey, guys, hey, guys, knock it off. Think about others. Uh, He's washing his disciples' feet. Here's one example. He's washing his disciples' feet while they're arguing about who should be the greatest in the kingdom. Isn't that ironic? I'll wash your feet, but they're arguing about who gets to sit next to Jesus. Um, So these four verses is called the kenosis. That's a Greek term for emptying. It's the idea of the doctrine of Christ and how he limited himself when he went from heaven to earth and became man and what that meant. Because when he goes from heaven to earth, humanity is added to his deity. That's a very important tech, uh, concept. Write this phrase down. He, re- ma- he retained his undiminished deity and gained perfect humanity. And you say, what is the big deal about Jesus becoming man? It's called the incarnation, right? And so when Jesus became God, he had every right to say, hey, I really don't want to do this. I don't want to die on the cross. I don't want to save these rotten sinners from hell, What he refused to do was selfishly cling to his own favored position as co-equal in the Trinity with God the Father and the Holy Spirit, and he didn't prize that as something that he had to hold on to. That's what it's saying. And the ultimate expression of that is he did what? He died on the cross for you and me. He was crucified for that. And so that's our example, Jesus Christ. That's called the kenosis. Now, The question you're asking is, well, then what did he give up? And the reason this is important, this deity, humanity of Jesus Christ, do you know that in the first four centuries of the church, that if it goes south theologically, it's because someone overemphasizes the deity of Christ and denies his humanity or goes the other direction and overemphasizes his humanity to the exclusion of his deity. Four different... um, uh, heretical belief systems came out of the first five, four or five centuries of the early church. So this is why it's important. So the question I'm asking this morning is, what did he exchange? What did he give up? What happened in this incarnation, in this kenosis? Four things. He gave up his place of dwelling from heaven to earth, right? John 6, 51, he came down out of heaven. You see that in John 16, 28. And literally it says in John 17, 5, that he gave up his glory in heaven. He gave that up. The glory I had with thee before the world was. He gave that up. Number two, he gave up his possessions from riches to poverty. All right? 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, for your sake he became poor. Luke 2, 7 
says he was born, and after he was born, immediately he is placed in this beautiful, warm bassinet in a very sterile, clean hospital. Is that what it says in Luke 2? No, he's put in a what? A feeding trough, a manger, all right? Luke 9, 58 says that he had nowhere to lay his head. He gave up his possessions. Number three, he gave up his power. This is the important one. They're all important, but circle this one because this is one that you must understand. He gave up his independent use or exercise of his divine attributes. Now, you say, what does that mean? Well, he's God, right? He can do miracles. He did plenty of miracles, but here's something he does in the kenosis. He never used his deity outside of his Father's will or for his own benefit. Because if he did, he could have taken himself right off the cross, for instance. Um, So he voluntarily chose to limit his divine attributes and powers. He doesn't give up. He doesn't give them up. He just puts them on the shelf. He suspends them, so to speak. Here's an example of that. What's the first thing that happens right after he's commissioned to serve early in the Gospels? He goes out to the wilderness, and what happens? He goes, and he's what? He is tempted by who? By saying, what is the very first, this is unbelievable, what is the very first temptation that Satan gives him? He says, because it's been 40 days and he's what? Hungry. He could just go, snap, let's have a full, you know, three-egg omelet with all the trimmings. Of course, no bacon because he's Jewish. But the bottom line is, he could have done it, right? Right? And what does Satan tempt him with? Turn these stones or rocks to what? bread that would feed his hungry stomach. Just cool theological sidelight. Okay, one little rabbit trail. What is Jesus called? He's called the bread of life. He is the author and sustainer of life. He could have done it. He chose not to serve himself. Now, in the same light, there's a group of people. There's 5,000 of them. They're hungry. He's been preaching all day. The, the disciples say, what are we going to do? How are we going to feed this many people? And he goes, go, let's see what we got. They come back, this is all we got. We got two fish, five, or five loaves, two fishes. What are we going to do? Jesus says, no problem, just deliver me. go, seriously? And of course, you know the rest of the story. So he multiplies loaves and fishes to feed hungry multitudes. That's a miracle, but he doesn't serve himself. He gave up his power. He emptied himself and voluntarily said, God, I'm going to, to God the Father, I'm going to put this on the shelf and only use these when it's for your glory or for other people. He suspends the use of these abilities temporarily. Number four thing that he gives up is his position from equality with God in form, morphe, to servanthood as a man. We see that in Mark 10, 45 and John 14, 28. Now, here's the interesting, the first three, first three things, those are all temporary, except for this one. This one's permanent. When he goes back into heaven, he ascends into heaven, he gets back all of his riches. He's clothed again with the glory of God. But, but he retains his human form. Do you get that? He never goes back to being part of the triune spirit of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He forever remains fully God, fully man. That's why he now can become our great high priest, because he understands, he relates, he mediates because he's lived. 
as one of us. And you can look at the Scriptures. By the way, all the extra stuff that I'm not saying this morning, it's all in my notes. It's all online. When they post today, you can just download all these to look this up for yourselves. And so having assumed uh, his human nature and form, he goes back to heaven so that as man he sits upon the throne of God. That is good stuff. And so next we see the exaltation, the selfless one, the humble one, the one who is the ultimate focus on others, Jesus Christ, He reigns supreme. Look at verses 9 through 11. Look at the reward. Therefore, God has highly exalted Him, verse 9a, the recognition, and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name. What is that name? Jesus, also Yeshua, also Joshua. It's a common name. It means salvation is the Lord's. Clarifying that this is the Jesus we're talking about. What's the response? Verse 10, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. What does that mean? In heaven. That doesn't matter where you are. If you're in heaven, those are the believers who have died and whose spirits are in heaven, even as we speak. They've gone to be with Jesus in heaven. Those people still alive on the earth, that's the people on the earth. Who are the people under the earth? These are not worms. These are not cave dwellers. These are people who are unbelievers. I believe they're awaiting the resurrection. Uh, you know this if you studied Old Testament scriptures and theology, that when a non-believer dies before Christ returns, they go to a place called Hades. It's also known as Sheol, S-H-E-O-L in the Old Testament. It's a place where the spirits of the unbelieving dead go until God resurrects them on the judgment day. Now, the ancients thought that was under the earth because that's where they buried someone. So he's saying it doesn't matter. The response will be that, every, that the name of Jesus, every knee is going to bow, whether you're alive on earth, whether you're alive in heaven, or if you're dead and you're waiting for the final judgment. And what is the result? This is awesome. Verse 11, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is no escaping, there is no escaping His Lordship in our life. Let that settle in. There is no escaping the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So when you acknowledge Jesus as your Savior, you're actually acknowledging Him as your Lord, more importantly. It involves submission. It's obedience. Now, I'm not preaching lordship salvation. I'm just saying that one day, every single one of us are going to kneel before the Lord Jesus Christ and we'll give an account for our lives. In the New Testament, because we talk about accepting Jesus as your Savior. Well, the New Testament says that he's called Lord some 747 times. The words Lord is used with Jesus. In the book of Acts, he's referred to 94 times. 92 times he's referred to as Lord. Only two times in the book of Acts is the word Savior used. So I believe, and many believe, that the first creed of the of the, of the early church was Jesus is Lord. Make no mistake about it. And it's in direct competition with who? Who was, who was the supreme emperor of Rome at that time? It was Caesar, right? And they would say, Caesar is Lord. 
And Christianity turned that on and said, no, 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 Caesar is not Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. And in fact, the Romans say, if you don't say Caesar is Lord, if you don't bow your knee to Caesar, what would happen to the Christians? Right? Executed, gladiators, all that you've read, if you've been to Rome, to the Colosseum, that's where thousands of Christians were put to death because they would not bow the knee to Caesar, and their Lord was the Lord Jesus Christ. So every day, I want to wake up the first thing in the morning and thank the Lord for having life. And I challenge you to wake up in the morning and before you go to bed, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for my life. You are the Lord of my life. Chad's going to come and we're going to, to worship about this in a moment. But I want you to think about this concept of lordship in your life. Someday, and that day will be when you stand before the living God, you will bow in humble adoration before Him. Every nationality will, will claim Jesus as Lord someday. Every French person, Arab, Russian, Chinese, American. Every age group, whether you're a builder, a boomer, a millennial, a Gen X, you'll know. Every man, every woman, Every child, every parent, every grandparent will kneel before the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Every religion will figure it out. There is one true God, whether that's Islam, Buddhism, New Age, atheist, every self-made religion. We'll all be humbled and we will have to come to the conclusion that Jesus Christ is Lord. You say, John, aren't you a bit dogmatic about this? No, I am no more dogmatic about Jesus being Lord than the Scriptures are. And I think, so often, I think that He's just my buddy. He is a friend in time of need. But I want to revere Him as the Lord of the universe and not be so casual in my treatment of how I view my relationship with the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You know, every politician is going to kneel in front of God someday. Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton, President Obama, any future president will kneel before the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Every musician, every actor, every reality star, every football player will kneel but for a different reason. And in fact, every scientist, every professor, every businessman, every homemaker, every single created being will kneel. Now, I don't like kneeling. It's hard on my knees. I'm an old guy now. But if you are physically able would you join me just for a moment of silence as we kneel before the King of Kings and the Lord of Hearts? And if you can't get down, I get it. I'm going to do the partial thing. I'm going to put my arms on the chair. Would you join me for just a moment? Because every knee will bow. Just for a moment. Every knee will bow. Lord Jesus, as we kneel here 
we know that we're in need of a Savior. Lord, every person in this room has probably come to the place where they realize they can't do this in their own flesh, in their own abilities. And in fact, Lord, they know that they need you. And I thank you, Lord, that you are the, the one and only one that's deserving of yielding my life to. Thank you for your ultimate act of selflessness, that you died on the cross for my sins, that you didn't force yourself on us, that we have to willingly submit to your lordship and give our lives to you, that we literally put our lives into your hands. So, Lord, I call you today not just Savior. I call you Lord. And my question to all of us this morning, is he the Lord of your life or not? And in the humbleness of this moment, and in the thoughtfulness of this silence, I know most of you know the Lord. But some of you are not yet there yet. And I want to give you one more chance. Today is the day. This is your chance to respond to the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. But maybe you're a Christian today and you said, I've accepted him as my Savior, but I have been living as if it's my own agenda. And I want Christ to change me from the inside out. Because we realize it's not an act of, of sin management. But Lord, we know that we need you. We yield to you. And so today, if you're saying, I want to reiterate again one more time that I want Jesus to be Lord of my decision making, be first in my life. I'm a Christ follower, but I'm committing again to put him on the throne of my life. Would you do me a favor and just look up at me for a moment? It's just between you, me, and God. You're saying, that's what my desire is. I want him to be the Lord of my life, not just my Savior. Okay. Okay, 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 yeah. Lord, I, I raise my hand, I look up as well because I don't want to be that guy who talks about you being the Lord of my life. Would you live through me? And so, Lord, today we give our lives to you again. We yield our lives to you, our agendas, our priorities. Thank you for teaching us today. Help us to be others first in this me-first culture. May that be true of all of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I don't think I could have picked a more perfect worship song as we think about the Lordship of Christ and the only way that we live that other person's selfless lifestyle is when he's the Lord of our lives. We don't have to muscle up on it. He's the one who does it through us. Amen? Let's lay down our agendas this week for his agenda. Amen? Have a great week. We'll see you next week. Amen.